Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you a special festive delight. Uh, Patrick McGuire will be back with daily episodes of the podcast from January the 2nd. I'll be back on the 9th. But until then, we're going to be dropping our Leader of the Opposition feature in your timelines every day. In 2021, we rounded up every Prime Minister with Andrew Jimson. And in 2022, Nigel Fletcher from the Centre of Opposition Studies has been telling us about every Leader of the Opposition who crucially never made it to number 10. From Charles James Fox all the way through to Keir Starmer. So let's get on with it then. Hit the montage. Leader of the pack. First up on today's episode, it's Herbert Morrison. So after quite a run of pub quiz questions where they weren't exactly household names, uh, we've got one of the giants of the Labour Party of the mid-20th century, Herbert Morrison, um, who, amongst other things, is uh, also Peter Mandelson's grandfather. Um, And there are some interesting parallels between their their careers, which I'll I'll come on to in in a minute. But um, he, he was a, a huge figure in, in Labour history. Um, and so he, he technically does qualify uh, to be uh, a leader of the opposition because he was for a few weeks in December 1955, the acting leader of the opposition. Um, he succeeded Clement Attlee uh, very briefly uh, because Attlee went straight to the House of Lords. Um, and so I've checked the record. You can't always rely on Wikipedia, uh, who said that he was acting leader during the leadership contest. Um, and it's actually true that um, Attlee left the House of Commons and went to the House of Lords. And so whilst they were electing uh, the new leader of the Labour Party, Morrison was the acting um, leader for a few weeks in December of 1955. So he does qualify, but that's certainly not his his place in history. Um, he held sort of two of the great offices of state. He was Home Secretary and, and Foreign Secretary, um, but didn't quite make it to the top job. And um, it's something which I think over 20 years uh, from the time he first challenged Clement Attlee to be uh, the Labour leader in 1935, 
he was aspiring to become leader and prime minister and never actually made it. Um, so he is um, the sort of absolute uh, uh, typical um, example of a, a sort of a nearly man. And he's one of those people, probably not a household name, uh, particularly in the UK right now, but would have been back in the 50. You know, he'd been in the front line of British politics for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. And um, he w- he made his name really in, in two ways. Firstly, he was the Home Secretary during the Second World War. He, he didn't start as Home Secretary. He joined the coalition government in 1940 as Minister of Supply. But within a few months, he was Home Secretary um, and was in that post for the rest of the, of the Second World War. And uh, his name lives on in sort of... Um, in the uh, the Morrison shelter, one of the air raid shelters that people build at home. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't, um, I hadn't put the two two and two together. Yeah, so that was why it was named after him. There was also the Anderson shelter, which um, which was his predecessor, his brief predecessor, uh, was named after him. But um, so he was um, he was certainly a household name at that time. But even before then, he he was a big figure in the Labour Party. But he also made a career in local government. He had a sort of lifelong, um, or certainly career long. Uh, affiliation with the London County Council, uh, which he was elected to in 1922. He'd been born in South London um, and left school at 14. Uh, we don't need the bell for, for <laughs> Eton, and, Eton and Oxford. He, he left school at 14. Um, his father was a police constable, very conservative man, and uh, that caused um, some uh, tensions between them. Um, but uh, after a, a radical period in his youth, he was a member of the Social Democratic Federation, the sort of Marxist group, um, that was sort of very loosely affiliated to the Labour Party at the very beginning, but, but very swiftly um, diverged from it. Um, he became much more mainstream. And um, he was conscientious objector in the First World War, um, but really sort of moved to, to the centre by the time he was he was active in politics. Um, but yes, it's this association with the London County Council that really sort of made his name. He became leader of uh, the County Council in um, 1934, I think it was, um, around the sort of beginning of the, the 1930s. Uh, and that was a really sort of important position if you sort of equate it to sort of currently now Mayor of London. Uh, he was in charge of London government. Um, and he had been Minister of Transport in the second Labour government between 1929 and 1931. Um, and in that role, he tried to sort of um, establish London Transport to sort of uh, or nationalise sort of all the transport uh, in London. Um, and that didn't come off at the time, but then as leader of the um, LCC, um, he managed to do that. So he's got quite a, a list of achievements to his name in that role before he even sort of became a yeah, cabinet yeah. minister. And then um, he, because we've talked so much uh, about people who on paper, he had all of, you know, all the credentials. He'd been a cabinet minister during the war. Uh, um, uh, before that, as you were saying, you know, running London. Um, he he was seen as the the obvious successor to Attlee, but Attlee wouldn't just <laughs> just wouldn't step down. Yeah, uh, and so having been the the you know the the coming man, he suddenly seems to be past it in the blink of an eye. Yeah, absolutely, and um, and it has to be said. I mean, Attlee very much didn't want him to succeed him, and sort of did everything he could to make sure that he didn't. Um, including after the Labour government fell in 1951, Attlee stayed on and fought the next election in 55. Um, and because of the narrowness of the defeat in 51, it was expected Labour might return to government at the next election. 
Um, and so Morrison might have then become leader and then prime minister. Atlee stayed on, fought that election, which they lost heavily, and it was quite clear they weren't coming back to government anytime soon. And so the obvious successor then became a younger man, and it ended up being at Gates School uh, rather than Morrison. Morrison then seemed to be uh, too old to do it. And it's, it's said that Atlee sort of hung on long enough to ensure that Morrison absolutely didn't succeed him. But he was <laughs> he was certainly a, um, a big figure in the Labour government of 45 to 51. He was... Um, Lord President of the Council, Deputy Prime Minister. Um, but his big sort of focus during that time, or, or a large part of it, was on the Festival of Britain, which took place in 1951. Um, and that was this great, great festival of sort of Britishness, which uh, took place largely on the south bank of the Thames, um, including various attractions, including the Dome of Discovery. Um, and that's quite uh, and that that's quite pertinent. It brings us all the way back to, uh, indeed, to his grandson, be, Peter because Mandelson. his grandson, um, then Peter Mandelson, of course, was in charge of the Millennium Dome, um, and he saw very explicitly those parallels because he, of course, when he came back into Gordon Brown's government, uh, he one of the titles he seemed to insist upon having was Lord President of the Council, um, and he said, I think, at the time, and certainly has said, said since, that he was very touched by that because it was the the title his grandfather had had in the Labour government. So he. He certainly, although he saw very little of his grandfather, um, it was a big influence on him. So it's a big link between that sort of Labour government and, and New Labour. So that was the story of Herbert Morrison, acting leader of the opposition for just a few weeks in December 1955. Next up, it's Arthur Greenwood. So we've got Arthur Greenwood, uh, who was uh, the third of our sort of acting leaders of the opposition during the Second World War. So he's the, the third answer to the pub quiz question. What, 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 um, sorry, just briefly, Nigel, let me jump in there. Yeah. Why are, why are Labour so rapidly cycling through leaders at this point? Can you just remind us? Well, I mean, the, the first one um, who uh, we spoke about um, a couple of weeks ago, um, Hastings Lee Smith, um, uh, because he died, um, sadly. Um, and uh, so, so he was um, uh, leader of the opposition from uh, 1940 to December 1941. Um, he died, and it was his deputy then who we spoke about last week, um, uh, Pethick Lawrence, uh, Frederick Pethick Lawrence, who took over. Um, and he would have then continued serving in that role had it not been for Arthur Greenwood um, stepping in. And the reason Arthur Greenwood um, stepped in was because he was deputy leader of the Labour Party, but had been in the, co the coalition government during the, uh, the war. He was in the, the war cabinet. Um, and in February 1942, um, I think I said last week that he, he stood down um, from, from the government. He was, that, that's to put it a bit generously, he was actually sacked uh from the government i think i think the the uh the scientific term is he left by mutual consent fans of football I think so. will know that one indeed yeah and actually it was it was quite an interesting one because of course the, the dynamics of a coalition government you've got um obviously winston churchill as the um, conservative leader um but also um Attlee in there as um a senior minister he was lord privy seal and then became deputy prime minister um, and he actually was quite keen to ensure that Arthur Greenwood, who was was quite a significant figure, he was deputy leader of the Labour Party, stayed in the government. Um, but then in 1942, they had this sort of cabinet reshuffle. Uh, and in the negotiations over that, um, Attlee moved jobs and became um, deputy prime minister. And as part of that, he agreed that Arthur Greenwood should be let go. Um, so it was by mutual consent, but mutual consent between Churchill and Attlee. Um, that Greenwood was then um, asked to, to leave his post in government. So when he left that, that position, then clearly as deputy leader of the Labour Party and a, a former minister, um, he was the most senior Labour figure outside of, of the coalition. And so he 
um, took on this role as being the sort of de facto leader of the opposition. So it's a bit unfortunate for uh, last week's subject, um, Fred, Frederick Pethick Lawrence, who, who only lasted a couple of months in it because he was displaced by Greenwood. So Arthur Greenwood was leader of the opposition then from 1942 until 1945, mm. the business end of the war. Um, as I said, you know, the start of the of the item there, a lot of people remember him as the... Uh, as the guy who got up during the Norway debate and, and socked it to the appeasers, didn't he? Um, but what, what was his sort of what was his sort of stance like during the war? What, what was his role as? Cause it was quite a, a strange constitutional role, wasn't it? Given he wasn't the leader of the Labour Party, the actual leader of the Labour Party is is Churchill's deputy. He's not part of the wartime coalition. So what was his role during those three years? How did he how did he acquit himself? Well, I mean, he did fairly well, um, but the, the job was fairly much a procedural one. It was really standing up um, to, to sort of respond to government statements and, and as we would normally expect the leader of the opposition to do. But, but because Labour were in, in coalition, obviously, you're not standing up to sort of um, oppose with sort of vociferously. Um, but as you said, his most famous um, speech came before um, the, the sort of coalition was formed. Um, it wasn't actually in the Norway debate. It was actually on the, the eve of the Second World War when um, Neville Chamberlain came to the Commons after the invasion um, of Poland by Germany. Um, and he was um, seen by conservative backbenchers um, as sort of vacillating over whether to declare war or not. And that's why they were so unhappy. Um, so the famous shout that you mentioned from Leo Amory, speak for England, Arthur, was taken as, as being a, um, an indication that Neville Chamberlain wasn't. Um, and so when um, when Greenwood stood up to speak, he was standing in for Attlee. Attlee was was um, ill at the time. And so Greenwood was essentially responding on behalf of the opposition as, as his deputy. Um, he stood up and gave what was seen as being his his sort of most famous speech, which was a, a sort of heartfelt denunciation of this this in, inaction um, where he sort of said that uh, I wonder how uh, how long we're prepared to vacillate at this time when Britain and all that Britain stands for and human civilization are in peril, um, which obviously got a very good response, uh, not just on, on the Labour benches, but on the Conservative side um, as well. So. Um, so, yes, he was seen as, as having sort of made this, this this big contribution. And so when he was um, then in, in sort of technical opposition um, for the, the second half of the Second World War, um, he was a big figure. But the job really wasn't to sort of do what we would expect the leader of the opposition to do in peacetime uh, in normal party um, party politics. He wasn't trying to score partisan points, yeah, as you say, no. bash the government, because, you know, his friend and colleague Clement Attlee was across the uh, across exactly. the aisle from him. Exactly. And, and the two of them um, worked very well together. I mean, um, they were um, elected at the same time in 1935 as, as leader and deputy of, uh, of the Labour Party. Uh, and talking about leadership elections in, in the last few weeks, I mean, it, it does seem that Greenwood's um, votes in that leadership election, which at the time was only an MP's ballot, um, but he came third in that. He came third. Um, he was behind Attlee, but also behind Herbert Morrison, who was a great uh, opponent of, of Atlee's. Um, and actually it was, so he was eliminated on the first ballot, um, because he came third and it was his votes that, that looked to have swung the election, um, for Atlee. So of course the two of them were, um, were, were quite close. Um, and at that time in 1935, um, Herbert Morrison refused the deputy leadership of the Labour Party. That's how uh, how much he he disliked Attlee. Um, and so that's why Greenwood became deputy leader. So the two of them worked quite well together. And that was um, over 10 years. They were they were sort of he was deputy to Attlee. And, and just uh, very briefly, Nigel, sort of sad end to the story. Attlee resumes leadership of the Labour Party or leadership of the Labour Party outside the 
the coalition in 45, wins the election, appoints uh, Greenwood to his cabinet, sacks him two years later, and he, he dies a rather unhappy man, doesn't he? Mm. Yes, I mean, he was um, he was seen as a big figure in the party. Um, and so having been deputy leader and um, and sort of served for, for a long time, he, he, he had a number of other offices within the party. He was very associated with the Labour Research Department, for example. Uh, he was later elected as treasurer. Uh, and chairman of the national executive. So he had a lot of sort of party offices and Attlee kind of felt beholden to him because of his popularity in the party. And that's why he appointed him to the cabinet when, when he took office in 1945. But just like in the second world war, when, when Churchill sacked him, um, he wasn't seen as terribly effective. And it has to be said in a number of the accounts of his life, he did seem to have a bit of a drink problem mm. uh, as well, which I think uh, made his career suffer. So he, he, he was in office there under that Labour government for, for two years. Um, and Attlee wrote him this, this, this rather lovely note, actually. Um, it's quite a sensitive way of sacking him where he sort of said to him, I'm going to be shaking up the team. We need to bring on younger uh, Labour MPs. And that does mean uh, that some uh, very loyal and long-standing members who've given good service to the movement will have to retire. And, and unfortunately, and was in, in that category. Yeah, indeed. Um, so it was quite a nice sacking. But um, but yeah, he moved aside. He actually stayed in some of these Labour Party offices for quite a while. But um, but yeah, he was he was on the wane. And um, and so he, he remained nominally, I think, um, treasurer of the party and a number of other offices uh, into his dotage. But he died in 1954. And what's notable, actually, is that when he did die, um, both Churchill and Attlee spoke in the House of Commons. They had a, a series of tributes to him in the Commons, which is quite a rare thing for uh, for someone who's not a, a party leader or, or someone of that stature. So he was clearly seen as a big figure by both Churchill uh, and Attlee, and they both spoke very warmly of him. Arthur Greenwood there, the last of the three former Labour ministers to serve as acting Labour leader of the opposition during the Second World War. Next on our trawl of leaders of the opposition is Hugh Gateskill. The Labour leader of the opposition from 1955 to 1963. Um, and of all of the leaders that we've uh, we've covered, uh, we've we've said that you know it should have been me and uh, you know greatest prime minister we never had and all of those sorts of things. Why didn't they become um, prime minister? Hugh Gateskill, of course, is one of the tragic figures um, because, of course, the reason he didn't become prime minister was because he died um, before he became prime minister. He was widely expected uh, that he would have won uh, the 1964 general election um, and uh, died just a year before that, uh, just over a year before that, um, and was replaced by Harold Wilson. So uh, it is a great sort of historical. Um, loss. We don't um, sort of know how history might have been different uh, had Hugh Gates School become Prime Minister in 64 rather than um, Harold Wilson. Um, but he's a very interesting figure and um, leader of the opposition for quite a long period of time, um, from um, 55 to, to 63. Um, there, sort of um, about eight years there. And um, he was born in uh, Kensington uh, from a fairly privileged background. Um, we uh, we can almost get the bell out again because he <laughs> uh, he was educated at Winchester um, and Oxford. Very um, good. So a bit of diversity there. Um, and that's very um, much he, the Rishi Sunak route. Exactly. He studied PPE as well, so of course uh, we have to give him extra points for that. He was a PPE student, um, but his parents were both sort of colonial administrators. Um, they they sort of met out in the Far East, and um, so he grew up in a fairly comfortable um, household, um, but became uh, a socialist and a supporter of the Labour Party whilst he was at university. Uh, then worked as a, a lecturer until the Second World War, when he became a, a temporary civil servant um, in sort of economics, working for uh, one of the Labour ministers actually. 
Hugh Dalton um, at that time. Um, and then uh, in 1945, ele elected to Parliament for uh, Leeds South as a Labour MP um, and was promoted pretty rapidly. He became a, a minister within the first few years, Minister for Fuel and Power, and then a Treasury Minister. And then in, in quite a uh, astonishing uh, promotion became um, Chancellor uh, in 1950. Uh, so again, another parallel perhaps there with Rishi Sunak, that <laughs> um, he became a very young and um, and uh, quite um, rapidly promoted Chancellor. Um, but of course, he only served in that uh, office for just over a year uh, because Labour lost the election in 19, uh, October 1951, um, and uh, he uh, went into opposition. And it's really this period um, between 1951 and 1955 that is uh, a really interesting one for the Labour Party. You had the emergence of what became known as the, the Bevanites and the Gateskillites, uh, this real sort of factional warfare within the Labour Party. Surely between those. Not. That seems so uh, unlikely. I, it, that it, would happen it seems in the so unlikely, doesn't it, Matt? Yes, indeed. Um, the Labour Party, uh, usually so united and uh, um, and harmonious. Um, but this is uh, one of the sort of the, the great divides that, that sort of you could argue almost has its um, continuation to this day. You had the sort of the uh, the more left-wing factions um, in uh, around um, Nye Bevan uh, became the Bevanites and the Gateskillites being more cent centrist. And the interesting thing there is that the power base of each of them uh, very much reflects what we saw sort of in the Corbyn years recently. You had the um, the kind of grassroots uh, Labour members um, tending more towards the, the sort of Bevanites uh, and the parliamentary Labour Party um, around uh, sort of Gateskillites. So you have this kind of four-year war of attrition, really, between <laughs> the two wings of the party. Uh, and then after the 1955 election, when Clement Attlee stood down, we talked uh, a couple of weeks ago about how um, he went straight to the House of Lords and Herbert Morrison became acting leader. Morrison had been expected to be the um, the next uh, leader and then after that election when it looked like Labour was going to be in opposition for uh, quite a while the party chose to sort of skip a generation and that's why uh, Gate School then became leader. And he became leader and then was actually you know was doing pretty well and actually he's one of those people that rather than uh, missing out because the the public uh, gave him the thumbs down uh, he then sadly died in 1963 the year before the 64 election. Yes, indeed. And he would have been a very significant figure. You can look at what he did as leader as being perhaps a sort of um, prototype for what Tony Blair did later. He tried to reform Clause 4. Uh, he tried to modernise the party and make it more centrist. There's a lot of interesting things about his leadership. But of course, uh, as you say, it ended tragically before he got to become Prime Minister. That was the story of Hugh Gateskill. The next leader of the opposition is George Brown. Uh, yes, well, this week we're looking at um, George Brown, who briefly succeeded um, Gate School as Labour leader. Um, I was um, I was slightly concerned actually that um, this might be the answer to the to the quiz. But uh, I didn't don't think worry, it is. don't no, it's not. It's not George Brown. Can we get a Can we get Maggie there? <laughs> no. No. no, Nigel, 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 you should know better. Also, you should think better of our, our production. We never, we'd never, uh, you know, have that clashing in the middle well, of the show. But anyway, I'll let you off. I'll let I, you I off. I was, I was worried on the on, on the first clue. I think that's that that's the reason. Hey, it, that, it, it, it matched with George Brown. Um, that's the I've, magic I've just, of the quiz. That's the magic I've, of the I've quiz. I've just had a um, a stern word from producer Chloe because I, I think I have guessed the answer, but I'm I'm not allowed to have a proper guess. No, no. Um, <laughs> I'll credit you at the end of the show if you have got it right. No, <laughs> yeah. no, no. But anyway, that's that's enough fun and game. So, so George Brown, that. George, so Brown George Brown becomes uh, acting leader of the Labour Party. Yes, after Gates and, death. and um, he had been deputy leader of the party since um, 1960. Um, but he's probably more famous now for his drinking. Um, he is. Um, he's sort of a byword for 
um, sort of uh, drunkenness in, in politics. Um, I mean, it's quite a sad story. I mean, I think we'd recognize now that he was someone who clearly needed help. He, he suffered from alcoholism through, throughout his whole career. Um, but he's had a lasting effect um, or a lasting legacy in that uh, we all use the phrase tired and emotional now as a, a euphemism. Um, and that was actually coined by Private Eye um, to describe his, his many um, drunken incidents that sort of were, 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 were sort of rife at the time. Um, so that's one lasting legacy that we still have in politics now, which goes back to, to his time. And, and there, um, are lo- there are lots, you know, and as you say, it's important not to be too flippant about this, but there are lots of stories about George Brown's drinking. The one everyone remembers is him, him being in some state dinner and turning to the lady next to him and saying, oh, will you have this waltz? And the, the person next to him turning to him and saying, well, hang on, I'm, uh, that is not a waltz. That's the, uh, that's the, uh, Peruvian, Peruvian national anthem, anthem and I'm the cardinal <laughs> cardinal archbishop of Lima so you know no shortage of stories were from George uh, George Brown's heavy drinking when he was yes, foreign secretary and that, that was allegedly when he was foreign secretary but there is sadly no um, hard evidence that um, that it took place but it's a it's a wonderful story there were plenty of other stories that, that I think are, are, were clearly were true um, I mean long after he he'd um, left office uh, he announced he'd uh, he'd left the Labour Party and sort of there was a flurry of publicity which was rather overshadowed by the fact that he was sort of fell over and was found in the gutter by the press afterwards. So it was um, so there were many stories that can be sort of verified. But um, when he became uh, leader briefly, was this seen as a, a staging post on his inevitable road to greatness or even by then, was it, it clear he was going to be a caretaker and Harold Wilson, who eventually took the job, was going to beat him? Yes, I think by this time, I think we can say that his uh, erratic behaviour, uh, shall we say, mm. um, was something that had really harmed his his prospects. He was very much of the right of the party. He was a Gatesgalite. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the the debate within the Labour Party, these, this split between the Gatesgalites and the uh, Bevanites, uh, the left wingers and, and the right wingers in, in the Labour Party. And um, Gateskill was a, a friend and sort of mentor to uh, to Brown, and so he was he was very upset by his death, um, and uh, he would have wanted to succeed him as the candidate of the right. Um, what's odd about this time, uh, we sometimes forget uh, nowadays, is that the trade union movement and certainly the leadership of trade unions to which he was very close uh, were of the right of the Labour Party at that time, and he was of that sort of um, caucus. He would have wanted to take over then as as the mantle of Gateskill and become leader. Uh, Wilson was at that time seen as very much of, of the left. Um, and so when Wilson took over, um, you had a, a recipe for, for quite a, a bit of um, tension there between uh, Wilson and his, his deputy. Um, so Wilson beat him uh, in that. And I think his drinking was perhaps um, part of that. There's a famous phrase about people saying that they would rather have um, George Brown drunk than Howard Wilson sober. But, <laughs> you know, he was seen as having great skills. But um, but I think that was part of the reason that he he didn't succeed. Um, and so when Wilson became prime minister, um, Brown did become a, a senior minister. He was, first of all, um, secretary of state for the new Department for Economic Affairs and then became foreign secretary. But actually, it was his sort of erratic behavior and his drinking that led to his downfall um, because um, he threatened to resign on many occasions. This became sort of a bit of a running joke that he was always threatening to resign. And at, and at one point. Um, there, there's a great anecdote about to this effect in Nick Thomas Simmons's new biography of, of Wilson. He they interrupted a broadcast of Coronation Street to say George Brown has resigned, and in the end he actually didn't resign because it was yet another one of his um, will he won't he um, threats that was never that was never made good on. 
Yes, and he sent a letter of resignation at one point um, that Wilson sent back to him um, and sort of then gave him the opportunity to, to retract it, which he did. Um, but when he finally went down, it's, uh, it's um, appropriate that we're doing this on a bank holiday because that's what actually brought him down. Wilson, um, uh, uh, during an economic crisis, um, wanted to call a bank holiday to sort of stop the, the money markets opening. Uh, and wasn't able to get hold of Brown, um, who was uh, described as being so-so in his sobriety. Mm. Um, and Brown was so furious that he called a sort of cabinet meeting and shouted at Wilson in the cabinet room and stormed out. Um, and he regretted it pretty soon afterwards, but Wilson at that time sort of finally had had enough and accepted his resignation. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode, counting down every leader of the opposition. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the next one. 